Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we welcome Richard Stout, trombonist of the Cleveland Orchestra. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined as always by Nick Schwartz. We are live at the 2022 Third Coast Trombone Retreat. There's real life humans out there. We didn't just put that in. And so, Nick, we're like deep in it right now. And oh, yeah. towards the end of the retreat, how are you feeling so far? Tired and sassy. Tired and sassy? Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, this, this week's been uh, incredible. And, you know, first of all, thank you so much to the people that have reached out to us after the, the previous podcast uh, with John Kitzman. That's probably the most feedback I've ever received. Um, That was a really meaningful episode to me and to him and the outpouring was really overwhelming. So thank you for everyone that reached out and make sure you check out that episode if you haven't. Uh, A couple announcements. First of all, I want to say sorry. We've been a little slow on the podcast lately. It's my fault. (laughs) It's technology's fault. We are not abandoning you. We have not stopped the podcast. But we've had some technical difficulties that we're figuring out, and I think we're, we have it behind us, and we're excited, and we have a lot of exciting interviews that we're coming up with soon. As always, thank you to our patrons on Patreon. We have a lot of really cool stuff we've been putting on there lately. It's been really fun, a lot of different kind of interviews. And lastly, we want to thank Houghton Horns. They have been supporting the retreat for a while, and they've been supporting this podcast from the beginning. And they did a special gift at this Third Coast Trombone Retreat where they gave a prize to our mock audition winner, who is Justin Bain. Justin Bain. Justin Bain. Oh, we can applaud for Justin Bain. Typical, he's not here. (laughs) We are now retracting that prize. Um, (laughs) And for all of your trombone needs, visit HoughtonHorns.com or visit their showroom in Keller, Texas. Okay. I think, is that, have we covered our bases? I think we're ready to go. Are the bases covered? They are. Okay. Well, please welcome Richard Stout. So we just played a recital in this room. So how are you feeling? Feeling good. Feeling like that was a fun time. Feeling like uh, the collaboration was great and the energy from the audience was great. And what a cool space. 
Yeah, so we're in the block in what's called the block in Muskegon, Michigan. It's it's a space owned by the West Michigan Symphony, and we always play our recitals here while we're at the retreat. It's this really cool kind of box with hardwood floors, and you have light shining through. It's it, the best part is is what Nick. It's above a brewery. That's my favorite <laughs> part. <laughs> um, it makes intermissions. Uh, Quite lovely. And if that's not enough, we have a bartender in the space itself. <laughs> yeah, we tried not having a bartender one year, and that was quickly changed. Actually, what, the people who complained were the the hosts. Even for like the morning, it was a, uh, there was like a ten a.m. recital, and I think it was Don Lundquist was like, "Where's the bartender?" <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have a lot of host families that that put up our students that get into our festival, and they they've been amazing. So, Sebastian, I have a question for you. Oh, wow. That's, that's so, a first. So, last night's, this, today's concert was uh, at, at, uh, at a bar. And last, where was last night's concert we played? That, where was that? That was at a, at a brewery. At a brewery. Mm-hmm. Right. So, there's a theme here. Is this a third coast thing? I'm uh, glad you caught on. You got to the bottom of it, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 uh, the more people drink, the better we sound. Mm-hmm. It tends, tends to be true. All right, so let's dive in. So we like to, you know, get a little background of your life and, and where it all started and, and come up through today. So born in Chicago, raised mainly in Houston. Uh, well, when I was six months, moved to Beaumont, Texas, and uh, then sort of lived in southeast Texas, either both the Beaumont or Houston area, uh, until, well, in elementary school. I lived in the Philadelphia area for about four years in elementary school, and that's actually when I started playing the trombone. I was at a, uh, I was lucky to be in a public school system that was very well funded uh, for all things arts. And this particular elementary school had full-time teachers there for art, drama, band, orchestra, and chorus. And you were required to take two of those disciplines at least, so I chose band and drama. Uh, so I started playing trombone then, and. Uh, then I moved back down to southeast Texas, small town of Port Natchez, Texas, about 10,000 people. Uh, they had won the state football championship a couple of times in Texas, which is a big deal. Uh, so they had a robust band program. Uh, and even though I went back in the elementary school, which is sixth grade at that point, they didn't have music in the school then. So they let me walk over to the junior high for band where I really didn't make any friends there at first because I instantly got first chair, which wasn't appreciated by the junior high students. Um, but it was, it was super fun and sort of got me on this path of realizing really early on that, wow, music and the trombone could get me out of things like school and other things. So, um, <laughs> so uh, I then uh, spent high school years in Houston I started uh, a college degree at Rice University in the early 80s. It was a very small program at that time. And one day when I was looking at other catalogs of schools, I came across this place I hadn't heard of called the Curtis Institute. And I looked and saw that it was free and thought that's a place I could go audition for. I could afford to go there. So I... Uh, first called Curtis, and the person who answered the phone said, no, I'm sorry, the application deadline has passed. And I said, okay, well, thank you, I'm glad I called. Did you tell and, him you were first chair in your band? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> and uh, 
So I was relaying this to, to um, a faculty member there who's now a close friend of mine, Mr. Dave Kirk, who's, who's at the Rice University. And, um, and Dave kind of looked at me like I was something wrong with me. And he said, well, you know, you can probably still go audition there. It's a really good school. Oh, okay. And he said, well, why don't you call up, call up Dodson and tell him you'd like to go audition for her. And I said, oh, okay, well, who's that? And he said, well, he teaches trombone there. So I was kind of at that level of, of awareness, uh, but was fortunate to get accepted there. And I went to Curtis for four years. Um, and following that, I spent uh, a year if teaching. I may, if oh. I may slightly hit the So, okay. We got to Curtis. I'm curious about just what, what drew you to the trombone in the first place? Oh, if I can back up a little bit. Oh, that's backing up a lot. <laughs> well, that's backing up to second grade in Philadelphia. Second grade you started? Yeah, end of second grade. Wow. So, um, well, I had a brother playing the trumpet, or an older brother playing the trumpet. And I first thought I wanted to play the trumpet because I sort of checked out his trumpet at home. It's like, that thing looks really cool, especially in the case, which now I think is the best way to see a trumpet. Um, but... Uh, <clears throat> I was forbidden from playing the trumpet because there was too much, too much of that in the family. So they suggested the trombone. So oh, my friend down the street is playing the trombone. That looks like fun too. Um, so picked it up and there you go. Just had some aptitude at it and was fortunate to have a, a private teacher who came to the, to the house and gave me lessons early on. And um, was, uh, there's a robust, still is a robust Tremone community in the Philadelphia area. And uh, even as an elementary school student was now and then getting picked up by my Tremone teacher and uh, whisked off to, to read large trombone ensemble music. I'm sure I couldn't do anything. And it was this the kid they were always laughing at down at the bottom, <laughs> scuffling or whatever I was doing. But it was quite fun. I thought I was quite the star there. So, so were, were mom and dad musicians at all or musical at all? Uh, no, my mom was an amateur pianist. Uh, had played and as a child and played very well and would accompany me on solos. But that was sort cool. of the extent of her music career. But my, her father, my grandfather, was a professional musician. And um, he uh, was a great role model for me. He was somebody who played, uh, he played viola, violin, accordion, piano, anything that anybody need playing, played, he would play it. And in Fort Worth, Texas, he was, um, he was a leading contractor. He was principal viola of the opera. He was on the union board for 45 years there. He was uh, really a, a fixture. But one of the most interesting things he did in his career was in the 30s, he played for a daily radio broadcast, live radio in Texas, with a group called the Light Crust Doughboys. <laughs> and the Light Crust Doughboys played Western Swing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And sort of a, a more well-known version of that you might hear with Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys were a little more famous. Uh, or sort of a group like Asleep at the Wheel in modern times is replicating, or the Time Jumpers. There are people that replicate that Western swing style now. That was a fascinating time when like jazz and country music found some little way to merge in this area. It sure is, and, and a lot of just sort of golden-voiced crooners doing that Western swing, and the Light Coast Doughboys were, were fairly primitive, I would say, harmonically and compared to some of their, their contemporaries, but as the um, musically educated member of the, of the Doughboys, uh, my grandfather took it on himself to sort of teach people, to try to teach people how to read music. And what, at a certain point in their Doughboy career, they see they were sponsored. They were called the Doughboys because they were sponsored by Burris Mills Flower Company. 
sponsor of the daily radio broadcast. And the head of Burris Mills at some point said, now wait a minute, I'm paying factory workers and all kinds of people to work an eight hour day. And these fellers, they're coming in here and doing a hour radio and that's no, I want them here for eight hours. So for a while, until he came to his senses, I asked my grandfather about this. He said, yeah, well, we just, I, I decided to teach him first. I tried to teach how to read music, and then uh, I made us all switch instruments and play different things, and I tried, we tried to learn all of our tunes in every key. So there's always something you can do with your free time. That'll kill eight hours. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So that's very interesting. So you, so you had some musical influences. And I heard, I've been told, and I don't know much about this, but there, there, at some point, maybe in high school, there was some sort of accident, car accident that may have affected... Yeah, it really did. As, as I said, I, I started playing trombone when I was very young, and um, I was sort of had a, my embouchure was kind of set. I could, had pretty good range and heading into high school. Uh, and, you know, the all-state... Uh, process and competition in Texas is very fierce, but it was kind of people were saying, oh, you got to watch this kid. He's maybe even as a freshman, you know. Well, heading into the freshman year, um, after a band rehearsal, I was in a, a station wagon with uh, one of those pop-up seats that would face back in these 70s station wagons. Very unsafe. And uh, we were stopped uh, trying to turn left, and uh, we were rear-ended by a drunk driver at 50 miles an hour. So I, uh, I heard tires and looked up and saw headlights. And then there was a significant injury to the face. So uh, when what I, happened? well, what happened for there, I was in the back seat with, with um, two other students in the band and each of us hit the glass of the mirror with a different part of our head. So uh, one had a very bad concussion. Uh, one had to have a new nose and uh, I hit it with my front teeth. So I, I lost some teeth and, and it's basically kind of bit my bottom lip off. And so put put 17 stitches across my lip and um, uh, then I didn't play trombone. How? <laughs> well, how it's, I would tell you this, it would be better to do that to your bottom lip than your top lip, probably. Um, um, but when I came back, I had a, a, a large... Um, lump of scar tissue from the stitches and I found that I had to sort of move my mouthpiece off to one side a little bit to sort of get around that and get to where it felt okay to play again. Um, so it, since then I've never been able to move it. I've Different times I've taken time off and tried, yeah, I want to get it back to the center where it had when I was a kid and it just it just won't go there. <laughs> so so you, so you adjusted? I, I just kind of had to move it a little bit because the mouth, the rim of the mouthpiece was sitting on a, on a bump and it just couldn't be there. So I kind of moved it off of that bump. And so, um, you know, it taught me, uh, there's been various times in my career where I've um, had to take some time off through an injury or, or other. And uh, I've always found uh, that if I come back to it with a good technique and with a beautiful sound in mind and with patience about the process of learning and not overtaxing the, the muscles, it always comes back that this this part of uh, the the sorry you can't see that on the podcast I suppose sorry microphone uh, hey, the the the, uh, the 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 part of the lips vibrating the musculature of playing the trombone is is it's kind of less important than the, the the musicianship side of it your knowledge of how you're doing it your your idea of a beautiful sound or a phrase that you want to make uh, everybody has physical problems of some kind or another, or just the physical challenge of 
trying to develop a complete range on a trombone and is, is, is a physical challenge for anybody. Um, so I don't view an injury or something like that as, as really anything too much different from what most of us go through. Man, you made that injury sound like no big deal. <laughs> Very impressive. So maybe let's go back to the end of Curtis and pick up kind of where we, yeah, I guess left off. Well, when I was, so when I was, uh, before I'd gone to Curtis, um, I, I said I was, as I mentioned, I was, I'd grown up in the Houston area and um, I never made Allstate. It's still my regret. It took me a few years to sort of get my playing kind of, I felt like back to where, back on track. But, but when I was a freshman there at Rice University, the, uh, the Houston Symphony Orchestra had held a, an audition for their substitute list. And um, I didn't tell my teacher I was going to take the audition, but I won the audition. And when the screen came down, I was kind of like, you? <laughs> um, so Is that better than Allstate? I think yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I was able, I was very fortunate to get to, to, to work with um, the professionals in the Houston Symphony, wonderful players, uh, wonderful section, wonderful teachers, wonderful mentors for me. Um, and while I was a student at Philadelphia, they were kind enough to, to in, invite me to come down a few times to still play with them and keep that active. So when I, when I graduated from Curtis, I decided to move back to Houston um, and slotted into some of my work with the orchestra and as well a, a, a university nearby, a Historical Black College, Prairie View A&M had a last minute faculty opening and they asked the symphony who they could hire and they hired me and uh, I had a wonderful year uh, teaching uh, at a historical black college and it was, it was just, it was a really rich experience and I'm still in touch with uh, some people that I met uh, from that experience. Uh, but after that, during that year, I won my first um, full-time orchestra position which was to play the second trombone chair in Jacksonville, Florida for the grand total of about $15,000 a year. So. Man, hey, hey, Nick, do you like Jacksonville? It's one of my least favorite cities in the entire world. <laughs> sorry, sorry to our, all of our listeners in Jacksonville. It's, it's one Are of there the any? Nick's top three. I'm, yeah, I hope. Oh, Tri-City? <laughs> <laughs> Nick's being nice right now, too. Yeah, I'm trying to rein it in. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so, okay, so, at that point, you're, you're taking auditions, you finish Curtis, you're at Houston, you have a comfortable area. Are you, are you just saying like, okay, I'm going to just start taking a bunch of auditions and see what happens? Exactly. That's what I did. I, when I was in uh, Jacksonville, I basically started taking every audition that was open. Uh, I also, uh, at the time, um, <clears throat> was this was at a time when instrument technology and instrument options were sort of really starting to change. Prior to that time in the 80s, as, as some of you may know, uh, pretty much you had two choices. You could play a Bach brand or a Kahn brand of trombone. There really weren't other options uh, for the symphonically-minded trombonist um, for 90% of people. So uh, a couple other companies come out then and make some modern instruments that are much that that solve some of the problem of those problems of those older instruments and it just seemed like everybody went in a job was playing one of these new horns and so I, I got one of those too and um, I went about three years I think where I didn't get out of a first round of a single audition I was going to everything there was uh, for anything that was a better job than I had and constantly tweaking my sound with instruments and 
these and something sometimes I'd get sort of close and I, I stuck with some different instruments like that for oh five six years something like that and um, then one day I was just playing some instruments trying some instruments for some other musicians and just happened to pick up my old my old horn my old Bach that I had and play it into a person people just said oh we like that one that just that sounds like you and, and I just kind of thought about it and I said, you know, I'm just more comfortable playing this and I know it's kind of harder to play, but I'm just going to play this because I'm going to be happier and this is how I sound, so whatever. And I sort of made that decision um, <clears throat> and um, started doing a little better at auditions. There, there's something to that, right? Like, you know, we, we kind of have a default to like, we have to play the instrument that is like the easiest to play possible. Right, but sometimes you know, even ones with little quirks in them or ones that are a little old, it just feels right, or it has a sound that you just can't get on something else. I think so, and the, you know, there's not one right choice for everyone. You know, if if the whole world played one instrument and sounded all the same, it would be a pretty boring place. I think so. Um, so I, yeah, I, I took that to to heart and just um, decided to follow my own voice there. Um, and then I, an audition came up that I was very, uh, really uh, gunning for that I really wanted because it was in the Houston Symphony. And oh, that's, that's, that's the, the place I want to be. That, oh, I really, really want that job. I specifically want that job. Really practiced for it. And I went, I just bombed. I got super nervous screwed up the first, missed the first three or four notes of the first excerpt, you know, it was Tannhäuser, and I think I clammed three notes in a row, and I was just, oh, hanging my head in just shame and disbelief, and I said, you know, I'm just, I'm done taking auditions, but, I don't want to take anymore. I mean, but Rick, you play in the Cleveland Orchestra, that means, I just, I thought that means you've won every single audition you've ever taken, <laughs> every, you just like show up and they just give you things. Yeah, no, no, the way those auditions, you know, work is you, you just, you have to be absolutely at the very top of your game and have a great day and be what, a great match for what the, the ears that are listening to you happen to be looking for. Just a number of things have to come together for you. Um, and when, by the time I auditioned for my job in Cleveland, it was the 45th audition I played. Um, so it can take a while, you know. Um, so anyway, I played this audition in Houston, and I thought, well, I, I don't think I'm going to audition for any more jobs at all, because I'm playing first, by then I was playing first trombone in Jacksonville, and pretty happy doing that. And um, uh, I, was, I did a chamber music concert with a good friend of mine, a, a trumpet player, um, who's actually the executive director in Milwaukee now. Um, Mark Morehouse? Yeah. yeah. So Mark and I were doing a chamber music concert, and I was tell, relaying this to Mark, and he's like, really, no auditions, huh? And I said, yeah, I'm not even, I'm not even looking at the union paper. I'm not, I don't even know what's open. And he's like, well, North Carolina has principal trombone opening in, in two months or whenever it was. Then Cleveland has a second trombone opening. You need to get your act together. And go win that North Carolina job. Go win that Cleveland job. And just gave me one of those pep talks that like has you wanting to, that brick wall, sure, I'll run through it, you know. And and that's what I did. I won the North Carolina one and won the Cleveland job. I hope you, you've bought that guy a lot of drinks since then. <laughs> Sometimes you need that, right? It's it's you just you never know. It's it's you can be so talented and 
I mean, I don't care who you are. There's there's levels of doubt that creep in at times, right? For sure, for sure. Do you think you'd still be in Jacksonville if it wasn't for Mark? Uh, I'm not sure. It's hard to know, you know, in life what what the what opportunities would have opened up. Um, we never know, and yeah. I, I think that's why we have to. <clears throat> all, all we can try to do is be ready for when the opportunities present themselves. And even if you're ready and the opportunity presents itself, the nature of our business is probably more times than not, you're not going to get it. But yeah. if you're not ready, there's no chance you're going to get it. So um, I tried to stay ready for a long time and um, keep myself um, open to just open to <coughs> loving music and not being... Um, not becoming so fixated on the audition or having the audition experience become what my experience in music was. Mm. I looked at the audition as a necessary evil I needed to go through. I just to sort through nerves, execution, preparation, all the same things everybody else does. Um, so I could get to the point where I could play music and not worry about excerpts and auditions anymore. Um, That's, I mean, that's something you probably learned through that experience, right? I mean, 40, 45, you said? Yep. I mean, <clears throat> it's so hard to not let auditions define you, right? It's it's like the constant rejection. And it, people talk about, you know, if you're successful in 2% of auditions, you know, you're well above the curve kind of thing. Um, so do, did you have, like, something that kind of a centering thought that kind of, like, once you once it start, started to click for you, um, as far as like doing well at these auditions? No, it was just, it was different for, for everyone. Um, everyone felt different. I, when I won my, my job in Cleveland, I didn't feel like it was the best audition I played. I felt like the North Carolina one was. Um, it, was it was one of those days where we've all had great days of, of the horn where you just pick up your horns like, wow, today this is everything's working this is amazing and it's just one of those days where I just felt like I really couldn't miss anything um, and it was just exactly what they wanted Cleveland didn't feel like that I, I played my audition and I thought gosh I, I don't know I've, I've, I've played better um, but it was what they were looking for so do you, how much do you remember from that that Cleveland audition I remember experience? everything really so this was 2000 it was in the 2000 okay so second trombone, mm -hmm. um, what, what, what do you remember? Well, uh, <clears throat> I remember arriving in Cleveland the night before. I'd never been to the city before. Uh, I stayed in a red roof inn. <laughs> it was not very nice. <laughs> and uh, I drove myself to the hall and I thought, I don't know about living here. This is kind of a dump. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, and so I kind of, I was, and that kind of helped me not be as nervous about the audition, I think. So it's, it's easy to go to a place, you know, we've heard and admired and listened to the Cleveland Orchestra at Severance. So I think, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous walking in this building. So instead, I kind of walked in like a little bit with an attitude like a punk, like, I don't know about this place, man, whatever, I'm going to come in and play. <laughs> you just want a job, another job. Which I had, so I felt too. confident. Um, but, you know, and I will say with that confidence that, you know, I, I do remember walking onto the stage really for both of those uh, with the mindset that not not uh, trying to have any false, um, you know, braggadocio or anything, but I felt that everything I played was going to be the true way that the committee needed to hear these things. And in my and for myself, I knew that everything I was doing was the correct way that these pieces go. This is the correct style. This is exactly how they should go, and I'm going to show you how they should go. 
Um, and it's, it's not something you can just decide, well, I'm going to have that attitude and go in an audition like that. It's, it's through preparation and having, I think, having passed through a lot of rejection and just having arrived at that, like using those as like a crucible, you know, to, to like form your belief in what you're doing. So I did feel like I was playing with that kind of a, a burn of self-confidence in those. You need to be like drinking your own Kool-Aid. In a little moments, bit, right? Yeah, a little bit. It's like... Who, why, why not, you know, what, what, how's it going to hurt? And it's like, you don't believe in yourself, like who is, you know, that kind of thing. And wow. So I guess that was a long process. Um, they, they offer you the job and when, when they offered it to you, there was no like hesitation, right? This was like, like instant yes. Or were you of course there was zero hesitation. Now, of course, in the days before cell phones, uh, in 2000, or at least before I had a cell phone and, um, my wife was already in Colorado for a vacation that we were set to take. So we had a long uh, summer of work, and we were ready for this vacation with some of her siblings. And so she was already out in Colorado, and uh, I we had come up with this way for me to leave a, a word on a on an old answering machine, you know. And she would call in from a payphone and get the word. <laughs> so that's that's how my wife found out I got the job in Cleveland wow. was that I called from the personnel my office to us to an answering machine, left a message, and she put a quarter in a in a phone. So we've come a long way that way at least. Uh, but there was there was no hesitation in accepting the job. I was. Uh, taken downstairs and introduced to the music director it was Christoph von Dachnini at the time, um, and it was you know we, I'm, me anyway. I'm pretty nervous in that situation because I walk in like well I mean I I've, I've seen your picture on all these album covers yeah yeah I know who you are, um, and he was just disarmingly uh, charming and affectionate and just warm and just and a little bit scolding about something that he didn't like and just in like just just like a, like, like <laughs> it was like it was like okay grandpa I'm, I'm ready to come in like this is great um so no hesitation at all where i remember being in his office and he said and he looked at my resume and he said oh yes jacksonville you know, I had a girlfriend in Jacksonville once. Like, <laughs> okay, this is really too bizarre, but let's just have a beer or something, Christoph. And um, so it was. It, it worked out. He was. Um, he loved my playing from the start, and um, then he left town right away. So you know, he's kind of the perfect boss. They hire you, give you tenure, and then leave. Um, <laughs> no, no, he was. He was really wonderful to work with. I want. I want to talk to you about your experience since being in the Cleveland Orchestra. So you've been in the Cleveland Orchestra now for 21? 20, coming up on 23, yeah. 23. Man, my math is awesome. So I want to talk about some of your memorable moments in the Cleveland Orchestra. Sure. Uh, I'm, I, we have different kinds of colleagues, you know, in our, in our orchestra. Some that have this sort of encyclopedic memory of what we played when say, well, that was back on the tour in 88, you know, when we played till Oil and Spiegel with somebody at some place. I don't remember what we did last week, usually. So I, my memories are usually more sort of uh, colleague-based, uh, mm-hmm. place-based. Um, sometimes it's repertoire. I remember certain, a certain program that we did. But, you know, I, certain great pieces that you remember playing, I can, you know, I can remember, you know, I think Mahler three for trombone players. You know, Well, I've played Mahler three several times with... 
four different trombone players playing the solo, you know, and I've loved hearing every one of them play, you know, so I think about all of those. I think about hearing uh, Jim DeSano play it beautifully, and Steve Witzer played it in the London Proms just wonderfully. Massimo La Rosa played a very compelling Mahler three. Doug Wright played a beautifully character-rich Mahler three when he was with us for a year. So I, I think about um, the colleagues that I've been with. Sometimes I think about places. We're fortunate to have... Um, traveled to uh, and played in in Austria many times, the uh, St. Florian, which is the, the monastery where Bruckner was organist and uh, composed his works, and we've recorded several of the symphonies in there and spent some time there, and th- that's a really memorable experience uh, to, to be in such a really awe-inspiring space, and it's an active monastery, and underneath they have crypts with bones and you know it's, there's, it's, there's centuries of history and uh the uh the sort of <clears throat> catholicism you know that inspires that a lot of his music is just it's an it's an active thing there you know and it's very real and there's 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 sort of a, a sense of authenticity i suppose about our connection to the music when you're kind of can walk on the same Stairs where Bruckner was walking, and that's his organ that he was playing and composing these pieces in. And there's a, a reverb of something like 12 or 14 seconds in this place. And mm-hmm. all those grand pauses and Brook in his symphonies make a lot of sense when you let the space breathe. And so I, I those I remember those things a lot. I want to talk about the Cleveland sound. Yeah, you know, there, there's nothing like the Cleveland sound. It, it's one of those things you. I mean, of course, you have amazing recordings, but being in Severance, which is a unique space within itself, it's it's not huge. It's very, um, you hear so well in there, I think. I don't mm-hmm. know. But the way the orchestra plays is, is such a sensitive, um, I feel like everyone's listening to each other so well. And, you know, as a trombone player, I, can, I, I would be curious how, first, when you first started, was there an adjustment period? And it's, you're not the type of orchestra that, you know, where trombones are just going to like lay waste everyone and every you know that's all you hear right there's always a balance there you always hear color you always hear everything so i'm just curious what's it like being a trombone player in the cleveland orchestra Uh, for me it's great you know i i uh the the way the orchestra plays you know i talked about sort of finding a place that meets what you like to do i i didn't like feel i don't feel like i changed much what i did to get hired and so i i just began to love that a style where I could hear all of the parts of the score. Um, and so I, I, I just, I think that was, a, so it was a bit of a natural fit that way. I think in the, when I, by means of, of explaining the, what, when you say Cleveland sound, so I, having gone to, attended Curtis as a student, and we had been very sort of familiar with maybe what Ricardo Muti called a marketing idea, but the Philadelphia sound was, you know, very much publicized, you know, and what the Philadelphia sound was, especially under Eugene Ormandy. I got, I think I got a pretty good connection of what that was, and I loved that rich romantic sound, and that's a sound of string players not bowing all the same, but using what they would call free bowing and kind of using the bow as they need to, to but they play in a very dead, they at the time played in a very dead large space the academy of music kind of like a like a vocal style dry acoustic and to fill that up it helped the strings to just take more bow play rich play lush big fat sound that works and worked amazing for them it's really compelling 
complete opposite in Cleveland. In Cleveland, with a live, reverberant, not-so-large hall, the premium is on ensemble, it's on precision. No string player is ever taking their own bow. No string player is ever in a different part of the bow from any other string player. It's always, unless it's you know the, the, in that section where you can. And um, that sensibility of and, um, letting the, um, the excitement of, that happens when things are super, super together in a score is a different kind of excitement and energy from just it's exciting because everybody's going for it and there's a lot of sound and that's, that's amazing. But there's a different kind of energy that happens when nobody's really going for it in that way as an individual, but they're so connected to, to being like one organism and matching. The clarity of what happens to the score um, is, I think, really, really compelling. Uh, you, you hear a lot of the piece that way. So I think filtering back then to the, the winds and the brass, uh, for most repertoire, this uh, emphasis uh, really placed on that ensemble precision. And it's just difficult to make ensemble precision if you're making, if you're really going for it. It's difficult to hear everybody else and know if you're, uh, if you're really still with them. So um, I would say that in what it feels like as a trombone player, that is, there's very few times when I'm playing at my loudest in the orchestra that I'm not still able to hear and I'm listening to multiple other sections. Um, there's no time when I'm playing soft that I hear myself more than other other people. It's 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 always consideration and balance. So it's it's fun to play that way. It, it makes uh, things we do a lot of very soft uh, accompanimental kind of playing, and it, it uh, that has gotten a lot better for me since I've been there. It's a lot or a lot easier at least. Um, that's probably the thing I had to work on the most as a trombonist when I when I arrived there was to be really, really comfortable in the, the piano dynamic and lower. Yeah, how do you play soft? <laughs> what did you figure out? <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like, like in playing loud. There's, there's really no other way to learn it than to do it. You, you, have, to, you have to put it out there. And so uh, I, it's to this day, I still practice way more in the pianissimo range than I practice in the fortissimo range. You know, I, I find that in loud playing, of course to sound great, yeah, you have to practice it, but the support, the air support that we use to get a good sound in, in the loud dynamic, for most of it, ha it happens pretty automatically. We have enough support in the fortissimo uh, dynamic, but the support that we need when we play in the pianissimo dynamic is, is something to learn because I think a lot of people just, well, you just give up the support and then it, but in a way you have to, I find I have to focus more on the air and the support and being in the sound than in the fortissimo. I find the, the fortissimo dynamic, the support's automatic, it's there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, to pay you a compliment, I mean, I, I've said this for a long time, the Cleveland Orchestra has always been one of my favorites, if, if not maybe my favorite, and, and the reason is because the, the experiences I've had hearing the Cleveland Orchestra live, the, the, the only way I could describe it to people was that, you know, there's a lot of orchestras that I see that I, and some very good orchestras that I, that I always leave feeling impressed. And that's, that's something, to feel impressed. 
But every time I, I go to a Cleveland Orchestra concert, I feel, you know, I feel moved. You know, every experience I've had so far. So um, it's it's a special sound that you just, you know, that's what's so cool about orchestras, right? Everyone has its own history, their own building, their own culture of playing. It's just, it's so cool getting to play with different orchestras like that. And, um, you know, what, a, what an amazing thing. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about um, what, when did when did Steve Witzer join the orchestra? Oh, Steve Witzer was a wonderful, wonderful trombone player, a great friend of mine. Uh, <clears throat> Steve joined the orchestra in the 80s. I'm going to say it must have been around 86 or so okay. uh, when he auditioned. Um, and the principal trombone position was open, so he auditioned for principal. And uh, Jim DeSano was the associate principal at the time and was promoted to principal, and then they hired Steve as the new associate. Um, so when I got to Cleveland, Steve had been associate principal there. Uh, we instantly fell into being good friends, motorcycle buddies. Uh, we were, uh, did team teaching at the Cleveland Institute of Music. Um, we also did a lot of uh, R&D work with uh, the local instrument company that makes Kahn, King, Bach. Um, real interesting work in, in de instrument design. Um, so Steve played with us until, oh, I guess it would have been 2006, and uh, went and became principal trombone in Los Angeles. Um, so it was a great, great position for him. And, and um, as most of your listeners may know, he tragically died of a heart attack just a year or two later. Um, but uh, for sure one of my best friends in the business. So, do you remember how old he was at that time? Uh, Steve was 48. Yeah. Yeah. And what a, what a talent. Oh, if anybody, if you haven't heard, you know, you can, he had a, he did a solo CD called Among Friends. Yeah. Uh, it's a picture of him and his dogs. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's kind of Steve. And um, you'll hear a, a Lollier alto trombone solo on that. That's, I, I think it's about the most phenomenal alto trombone playing I've ever heard. Is that the one that opens with the Aways in? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, if you guys haven't heard that album, it's it's fantastic. And I got a few chances to hear a few chances to hear him live in some chamber concerts and just incredible musician. Yeah, it was we had such a good time. We did a number of recitals and things together. Uh, we would do uh, master classes together and um, in our recitals we would always play some two part things, Bach inventions or Telemann transcriptions, whatever we would find. And Pretty much every recital would go like this. We would walk out to play the whatever ones we decided we we're going to play, and he'd say, "Are you, are you top or bottom?" Like, I don't know. What are you want to do? All right, I'll play top. It just yeah. it was super fun. And then I would, I would at the time I, I would usually think, "Oh man, I don't know if we're matching very well, or if I'm playing top, or if he is." And I would go back and listen to recordings of it, and I really couldn't tell who was playing what. It was just we had such a, a, a beautiful match of. Uh, of style and those things. It was really enjoyable. Hmm. So you must, I mean, obviously before he passed, you must have been pretty sad already when I mean, he decided to move to LA. I mean, For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah that was, that was a, kind of an end of a, of a very happy era uh, for us there. Yeah. 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 He was sorely missed by the orchestra when he left. It's hard, it's hard to turn down the sunshine and the, the ocean. For sure. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Another one of your favorite cities. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just like hit every city we don't like. I got. I have a question, and you know, we're recording, and 
you don't have to say anything you don't want to, and we can delete whatever. But I'm curious, you know, I think a lot of people that audition are in the audition circuit are aware of, it just seems like every time there's a Cleveland Orchestra audition, they, you know, there's a lot of no hires or there's multiple auditions and it takes, takes a long time. Why, why is it so hard to, to win a job in the Cleveland Orchestra? Well, I, th I think many, I would say many orchestras have auditions where they don't hire anybody. Uh, so it's not totally unique to Cleveland. Um, uh, I would I think our process is different from other orchestra audition processes. Uh, our music director hears every note somebody plays from the first round on. Uh, our music director runs the first round, determines how much people will play. So uh, the committee sort of has, in a way, I suppose, less less say in those rounds about sort of winnowing it down. Um, <clears throat> so I think that makes it difficult, but I think it's difficult on the... Uh, for the player as well, you know, the players that we get to come audition for Cleveland have, most of them are out taking other auditions, of course, National Symphony, New York, whatever else opens up, they might also audition in Cleveland. And I think the fact that our, the fact that our, that our audition process is different and that in the first round of their audition, unlike the other auditions, they're hearing an Austrian conductor speak to them, I think intimidates people. Um, so I, I think it's just a little bit more of a feeling. People get a little more nervous, uh, maybe because of that. Um, I think it's always, in, when you audition on a, a loud brass instrument like we play, in a very live space, um, it's, it's tricky. Because uh, any, anything that, that is reverberating that is not absolutely in tune... Yeah. Um, is, is going to sound is going to be amplified in terms of the intonation. It's also difficult in a live space to make articulations sound really, really clean and really clear, and you know they can it can kind of muddy those. So I think that's um, having a, a, a real uh, importance on clarity of articulation and purity of intonation. I mean, those are the basics that work anywhere, of course. But it's I think it's those are even more highlighted in a hall like Severance. Yeah, you walk into an audition and just like play really loud in severance. It's, it's not. It's not going to sound smart. very good. Yeah, man. Okay. Well, thank you for for answering my hard hitting sure. question there. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So you play the euphonium and the bass trumpet. First of all, you know, no one's perfect, but you know, you play the euphonium on purpose sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, you see in a lot of orchestras that it's usually the assistant principal that has to play. You know, the auxiliary instruments, but in New Yorkshire, it's is it always been the second tremolo that's done that? Yes, it's always been second. My predecessor was Alan Kofsky, uh, who played about 50 years, give or take, in the chair. And um, he was uh, an excellent valve player, and that's the way they just always had the section. And so when they had the opening, they said, we want to hire the same thing, a second player that also plays valves. Unusual. Um, I would never call myself a valve player. It's not something I, I did when I was young very much. Uh, so for my audition, actually, I borrowed a, a borrowed a euphonium and borrowed a bass trumpet for a couple months and just busted like crazy trying to get those technical licks up to speed and get my valve technique <laughs> passably okay for the audition. So it was part of the audition. Oh, it was a big part of the audition. Really. Yeah, I don't. Well, yeah, I suppose you can cut this, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, in in the first round of, of my audition, there we just did. Uh, it was individual playing, 
uh, and then they cut it down to four players, and they, we did section playing with four players. Uh, and then they cut it down to, to just me, um, to, but they wanted to hear more. And so they, then they wanted to hear more excerpts and the valve instruments. So um, it's kind of this case of where I, the audition's going really well, it's going really well, it's going really well, down to one person, oh, this is great. And then I start playing vows, and it starts to feel like, oh boy, this could go sideways here. <laughs> um, so uh, they, they asked for uh, first a, a couple of um, tenor tuba excerpts. Uh, I played one, played a Mahler 7, that was okay. Uh, and then they asked for this, this Berlioz piece that is a special Cleveland Orchestra piece that they had sent for the audition. They took part of a, a passage of Damnation of Faust that was in the trombone part and they made a, a euphonium part out of it. It didn't seem that hard. I practiced it What's some. the history of that? Why, why is it? I'm did not, they actually play that? It's, yes. But now it's in the, back in the trombone part because we did Damnation of Faust. It was personnel-based okay. back in the day, as they say. Okay. So... Uh, so I'd sort of practiced. It wasn't the hardest thing in the world, but it had a metronome marking of, I think it said 138 or something. And I'd sort of, I'd practiced it not as much as I, because there was a lot to practice. I practiced other things more. So anyway, I got to, they said, want to hear this. I thought, okay, I'm just going to play a little bit of conservative tempo here. And so I kind of clicked myself something, something a little slower and played it. It went really well. I'm feeling pretty good. And Christoph Dagnani is out in the hall and he looks and he says, yes, but it's quite a bit faster. <laughs> and he clicks off something like 180 or 200. He just like <laughs> clicks this tempo that there's, there's no way I'm going to play it right. You just got to get the first note and the last note, right? Well, I thought about it and thought, okay, I'm going to play his tempo. And wrong notes start flying out of my bell like shrapnel. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's missed notes, there's wrong notes, there's, there's scuffles, and it's just... I just keep my tempo, I put it down, and I act like I just did the best thing one could ever do. Because that was the advice that my friend Mark Niehaus had given me. He had said, if something doesn't go right on this valve, you put it down, and just with the attitude like... You're king of the world. That and that's purpose. the only thing I could think of to do. I just set that euphonium down, and I looked out, and there was like this open mouth, stunned silence in the hall. Just kind of like, what just happened? <laughs> and so, and Doug Nani says, well, perhaps we should hear some bass trumpet then. <laughs> and so, so I, yes, that's a good move. So I got the bass trumpet, and they asked for this passage from Rheingold, that, or Valkyrie, it goes up to the high E. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. And I look at them. Yeah, I think I got this. So I play it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bass trumpet players in the context leave that out because it's doubled by third trumpet. Just saying. That's what Dr. Nani wanted to hear. Yeah. So I played it and I thought, I think it was pretty good. And Dr. Nani said, um, maybe again. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? What did I, do? I don't want to lose this audition at this point. I thought, okay. So I play it again and I. I, I Chipped a note that time, and I quickly looked at the at the proctor. I said, "Can I one more time?" And Doctor Nani said, "Looking bored." I'm like, "Sure." Well, no. And I played it. I was like, "I'm going to drill this thing." And I played it louder, and I just I know I didn't do anything wrong. And I'm thinking, "Am I playing it in the wrong key? What am I doing wrong here?" And and then he's like, "Well, go on to you know something else." So I played another couple bass trumpet excerpts, and 
that was the audition. And then they, they said, okay, we're going to hire you. And I went in and met Dagnani, and, and he says, among the other things he says, he says, well, you know, the, uh, the euphonium playing, you know, you, you work on this a little bit. <laughs> but which is his way of, uh, but he said, he said, the bass trumpet playing, where have you played bass trumpet? I've never heard such bass trumpet playing. And I've oh. conducted these all over the world. And I'm thinking, well, I've played it in my living room. <laughs> and I played, but have I just think, well, I, I, you know, I've played it with Houston a couple of times, which I had. And, um, and he just said, I only asked for the, the Wagner again because I've never heard it played correctly before. And, wow. Uh, oh. And so and sometimes, sweating. totally sweating. So going into the audition, I thought in terms of the vowels, I thought, I've got the euphonium playing nailed down. The bass trumpet, I don't know what I'm doing. But it turned out the bass trumpet playing was what got me the gig. So sometimes you really never know. That's a testament to, like, you never quite know what someone's thinking. Is, mm-hmm. is it possible also that a man of such stature and sensibility did not like the euphonium because it's not a real instrument? <laughs> now, see, you only get a chuckle from me because I'm not really a euphonium player. So. Well, if we don't make fun of euphoniums in every episode, it's not if a I real episode. Okay, I have one last Cleveland Orchestra question before our rapid fire time um, that I just thought of while you were talking. Do you think there's still a tangible influence at all from Zell in the, in the, in the, in the Cleveland Orchestra in any way? I think, yeah, I do. I think that the, um, the um, uh, and so much has changed. Our orchestra is so different from, from Zell's orchestra now, both in how we sound and in, in our practices. Um, but I think that it's that ensemble precision, was that was a George Zell thing. And that's, you know, every conductor likes that. Um, now, our music director now, Franz Velsermust, there are things he did, he did not like about that sort of, traditional Cleveland sound that he wanted to tweak. He wanted a more flexible, more transparent sound, uh, a, a sound that could be thinner and not so quite as thick. One thing that uh, the Zell Orchestra did uh, was that though every piece, pretty much of uh, in the orchestral rep, they doubled the wind parts in. All the Beethoven symphonies, all the Brahms symphonies, everything. Schumann symphonies, four winds. And George Sell was very well known for saying, it's, it's too loud, double it. He wanted more voices, more people playing softer to make a more homogenous sound. Almost like a wind ensemble yeah, concept, wow. you know. Um, and also in the George Zell Orchestra, it was every chair in the string section was a fixed chair. And that continued all the way until last year. And, so, and now we're a rotating string section. Uh, we very rarely double wind parts. We very rarely have assistants in the brass uh, playing. When I joined the orchestra, every large piece we played, we played with all four trombones. Brahms symphonies, Tchaikovsky symphonies, pretty much everybody's on stage. And would that, I mean, that wasn't necessarily for fatigue, but for sound? For sound. Oh. To play softer with more blend. That's such That's an really interesting, interesting way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think there, there's... I think there are, there are good examples of where that, that can, can work well in a trombone section, like play Tannhäuser, great to do it with four good players and, and make those phrases a little longer. Mm-hmm. Matisse de Mahler, play that opening soft thing and make it just really blend into, uh, but not many places do that. You could try that tomorrow. There's that, there's yeah. that great uh, 
um, video of Karyon conducting Berlin where they do Tannhäuser with six trombones. Yes. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. I imagine that was loud. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just more of a... You could get more volume without changing the color. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you keep a warmer sound, but have more people doing it. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I like that. Shall we rapid fire it? Rapid. Are you Go. ready? Are you ready, Richard Stout? Ready. I asked you this at the bar last night. I'm, I'm spitballing now. How? What level of annoyance are do you have with people asking you about? beer in regards to your last name <laughs> none because it, that really was about the first time it, it had come up people just don't you know people, oh, i really doubt that so it's you're called, just saying it's I've called low-hanging fruit sebastian i will never miss a dad joke that i can take advantage of okay advice to your 18 year old self boy advice to your 18 year old self be more patient in the practice room don't try to do everything now. There's plenty of time. You're on a desert island and you can only listen to one composer's music for the rest of your life. Who would it be? Mozart. Oh. How hard is it to be a Cleveland Browns fan? <laughs> no. uh, not nearly it's, as hard as a Lions fan. <laughs> I don't know. About I can't that. answer any better than that. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really easy, actually. You just have to really get rid of things like self-esteem and ideas like that. Okay. Once, once you do that, it's really quite easy. I can I, I can feel that. I know how that goes. What's something unappreciated? What's or the most unappreciated thing about second trombonists? Hmm. Uh, you know, a, a friend of mine once likened the uh, the role of the second trombone to sort of being like, like on a fire truck. There's there's somebody sitting at the back, like steering the ladder thing. You know, and nobody's really sure what they're doing, but you're quite sure that like if that person wasn't there, something bad's probably going to happen. <laughs> and I feel like second trombone is kind of that guy. Like you're 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 kind of shifting the weight of the of the seesaw a lot. And I don't I don't think that's always uh, sort of people are aware of that it's. Uh, as integral that sound uh, to the sound of the section as, as I think it is. Have you ever referred to yourself as the meat of the sandwich? <laughs> no, but now I will. <laughs> you should. You should. Okay, so only one composer on a desert island to listen to. Would the, the answer be the same to the question of you can only play one composer's music mm. through the lens of a trombonist? Through the lens of a trombonist, wow. Like orchestra music or solo music or... Uh... How about one of each? There you go. Oh boy, if you could only play one one composer's orchestra works, it might be Richard Strauss. I mean, there's so much, especially if you can include some opera. I mean, the operas are like where he's at. Um, and non non, uh, you know, I, I love I love uh, Robert Schumann. So there's not so much, um, and not so much that works well on the trombone, but um, like, like, as with listening, it would probably be either Mozart or Schumann and playing. Love it. Here's my last one. There is a billboard where you can write anything you want on the billboard and the entire world can see it. What are you going to write on that billboard? Wow. You know, I think this might be too much of a downer, but I think I would say... Stop killing yourselves and stop killing the planet and learn to live with each other. I think it would be something like that. I think that's great.
what is something that young and upcoming trombonists don't do enough of that they need to do more of? Uh, I know this is a little hard in, in COVID, but playing with, it has been a little hard, but playing with other people, um, more than you spend, or at least as much as the time you spend playing by yourself. Um, and I think another thing would be um, sight reading. And I think maybe a third would be to make sure you're playing some other instrument as well. Um, I, I'm terrible at piano, but if I would go back and as young, I'd probably try to play piano decently well. Um, but <clears throat> play multiple instruments and sight read and play with other people. That, that first answer, that's a good one. I don't think we've ever had that. Play, play with other people more. Yeah. That's yeah. great. I mean, there's just so much you learn. And you have a trio, a brass trio you play in. Um, and it's just, it's, it's such a nice balance to, to the, the normal job, right? For sure. Yeah. The, as the, for me, having a, a, a chamber music group that I really love, um, and we're as busy as we sort of can be, and we have lots of interesting projects. What are they called? It's the Factory Seconds Brass Trio, and the Factory Seconds Brass Trio is the second chair trumpet, horn, and trombone of the Cleveland Orchestra, and uh, Factory Seconds, which is a term which maybe generationally younger people might not know, but a Factory Second is generally an, a retail item of lesser quality, like a jacket that missed the stitch on it or something like that, so they sell it for cheaper. So we're like the, we're the ones, if you can't afford the first chair, you can get us. <laughs> yeah. I guess meat of the sandwich is what was taken. Well, we're so excited that you were able to, to share your time and your wisdom with our students and be able to perform with you at the retreat this year. We, we've long thought like that you would just be a perfect fit for everything we're trying to do here. And it's just been really awesome getting to know you a little bit, bit better this week and, and to perform with you and to hear you play. So thanks so much for that. And, and thanks for sharing your time. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Man, thank you so much for the invite. This place is fantastic. Thank you. Made it through the whole podcast without crying. That's a record. That's I don't know if that's ever been done. It's not too late though. Yes. Yeah. Here, drink you some more water. water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, right. you didn't ask me about um, you didn't ask me about my, my injuries in the orchestra, so oh. well, that's okay. That would have I gotten people going. That's okay. Dang it! Yeah. Everybody sit down. Everyone's. All right, so. We are in Cleveland, Ohio, but I guess this is Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. We are at intermission at the Blossom Music Center. We're playing Lord of the Rings with the Cleveland Orchestra. This is my first time playing with the Cleveland Orchestra. How am I doing so far? Can I stay? Brilliantly, and it's wonderfully in tune. Thank you, man. Well, you, you had a real opportunity to make fun of me there, and I appreciate it. So I'll stay for the second half. So we had a really awesome talk at the retreat, and just ignore the cars in the background if you hear them. It's, it's, it's atmosphere. And there was, you know, we had a brief amount of time to talk, and there was a few things I wanted to talk to you about that we didn't quite have enough time. It's incredible getting to experience the sound and be in this orchestra. And, and there was a moment in your life where you thought maybe you wouldn't get to do that much longer. There was a pretty big accident. 
Yeah, I had a, a slip and fall accident on uh, some some stairs that had some ice on them, and uh, it was about back in 2008, so almost 15 years ago now, and uh, just sort of lost both feet like Fred Flintstone at the top of a flight of stairs and landed halfway down with uh, some stone steps across my back, and it uh, knocked my shoulder blade out and ripped a couple muscles off and damaged my shoulder joints. So uh, it took a while to figure out all that and uh, come back from it. Ripped a couple muscles off. Yeah, well, we didn't know that really for about a year that it had done that. We were trying to treat other injuries, uh, the neck and the shoulder, but the, the primary injury, I had already had one surgery, but the primary injury had not been addressed, and that was the uh, the rhomboid and trapezius muscles had been sort of taken off of their shoulder blade where they're supposed to take up residence and control it. So it was just floating around there. So it's a very uh, disconcerting feeling to try to pick up your trombone when your shoulder is wandering around. Do you know about like every muscle in your back now? Pretty much. Had to do a lot of work on those. So how, how long did you have to take off playing? Well, I took off, uh, it was actually two different injuries because I I, uh, fixed my first injury and as luck would have it, after I had been back for a year, I slipped again on tour in in Vienna in a hotel, in a bathtub, and landed with my armpit on the edge of the of the bathtub and re-injured the entire thing. I had two more surgeries after that. But anyway, after the... Two surgeries. So, five total. So, but in the first stint... I didn't play trombone for 25 months at the longest point. And uh, as you said, I thought for a while I might not play again because I was legally disabled at that point. Wow, I had no idea it was 25 months. And and the orchestra was accommodating, I I take it. I mean, at that point, if you fall for a second time and you're having five surgeries, at at some point, do you start to think you're just cursed or something? (laughs) At some point, you like need to work on your balance, maybe. I don't know. Uh, But a little bit of bad luck, and um, there you have it. But uh, the the, the Tremont playing came back uh, both times, Um, and I'm a big believer in having a, a clear sound in mind that you're trying to do and not forcing the sound and setting yourself up with good ergonomics so that you can repeat it and uh, not overtaxing it. So you came back very slow. Came back very slow. My first day back playing was I had, I was allowed to play five minutes that day. And if that went well, I could do two five minute sessions the next day. So it went sort of like that. So there's never any doubt that you could come back. Well, not in my mind. Uh, I think in some in some people's. But after uh, that first time, after not playing for the two years or so, and starting at five minutes a day, by six weeks I was up to about three hours a day. And um, a couple weeks after that, I was back in the orchestra doing what we're doing here, playing at Blossom. That that's incredibly inspiring because I mean, I just went on a trip and I didn't play for like eight days, and I felt like I was a beginner. I can't imagine. 24 months i mean golly the amount so was the orchestra at some point being like okay when is it going to be or were they pretty cool uh they were all the time really supportive and in fact we had at that point a two-year maximum of time that that a position could be held uh but our orchestra actually made it a point of their negotiations that they said we want you know this guy needs more time and so i was given more time I mean, the, the, the group stood up for me in that, and that's pretty cool. So I imagine we're a lot better about using salt on our, our steps, something I learned when I moved to the north from Texas. 
And the, the first time I met you, I think you were coming out of it because it was when you came to coach at NOI, I guess that was like 2008 maybe. And I remember you sitting in the back of the hall and your, your posture, you were just so cognizant of your posture all the time. And I imagine this is such a thing in your head all the time, thinking about how you stand and that kind of thing. I imagine you learned a lot from going through this. Absolutely. And uh, do those core muscle exercises, postural exercises, uh, any kind of Alexander technique, anything kind of strength training like that, that, uh, that gets you in a good posture for long term, because we're all up against the forces of gravity over time. That's man. Well, thanks for letting me know a little bit about that. You sound very resilient for two years almost without playing. That's incredibly impressive. I imagine the mental fortitude alone, I'm just, you have to believe, right? You have to believe you're going to come back. Yeah, well, and also I kept, uh, I kept teaching and I would sing in lessons. Uh, I actually got myself some volumes of Schubert songs to sing at home and just to keep my ear going. And when you've been doing something, when you've been playing a brass instrument, as long as we have the, the physical act of playing the instrument will come back. The, the, I think the main thing is having a purity of, uh, of your ideas of a sound and, you know, be, being confident with it. I love that. Speaking of being confident and purity of sound, should, should we go play the second half of Lord of the Rings? I'm confident we should go do that. So thank you. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like looking at the musicians, making sure people are still here. Okay, cool. What's up, Buttercup? How you doing? I'm good. It's my first time using this mic, so I'm gonna just Sounds play with great. it. We're both Yeti men now. Awesome. Well, we're already recording, so. Mm. Yeti men. Come from a long line of Yeti Yetiman. Father was a Yeti His father and his father before him, Yeti Oh, look at you. You look like, are you in your cabin? Everything's kind of cabiny out here in Lake Tahoe, you know? As you do. Mm. Boop, boop, well, boop. I had a great time just listening to Rick's interview. You know, it it was at the retreat, which we'll talk about in a second. But I hadn't listened to it since we did it. And we're, we're in the middle of doing the retreat, which is, you know, all-consuming. You know, takes all a lot of planning and long, long days. And so getting back, getting to listen back to it again is like, man, it's so, so insightful and a lot of really interesting things. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... Obviously, I haven't revisited it because you're the one who edited it, but it's it's the first time we've done an interview at the Tramon Retreat, which was an interesting experience because, uh, we're like you said, we're so wiped, you know, and we're, we're, we're so busy while we're there. It just felt like, like, usually we, like, I don't know, build up to this thing, and it was kind of just like, oh, yeah, we got to do an interview now. And Rick was so great. He was... Uh, you know, he has, he has such an interesting story, amazing career, and just a swell human being. <laughs> yeah, my, my favorite part was in the introduction, I said, Rick Stout from the Cleveland Orchestra, like it was like it was a question. Mm-hmm. Cleveland Orchestra? <laughs> it's, just, it's just so flustered. We had just played a recital, and we're, just, we're doing the thing. But no, it was cool. It was, it was nice to have our students there to experience it. We, we took a, a straw poll the year before to see like, would you guys want us to do a live podcast at the retreat? Cause you know, time's at a premium and every single person rose their hand. So I'm glad we got to do that. And then I got to add that thing at the end. Cause right at the end of the interview, we realized that we forgot to talk about one of the, the most important parts of his life, which was this massive injury he had falling on ice 
and basically being out for 24 months, having five different surgeries, muscles being torn, and, and he just came back and, and sounds as good, if not better than ever. And the whole time he was just focused on the sound in his head, the sound in his head, because he believed his body would adapt. Well, not to mention, I mean, as you said in the original interview, he had that traumatic injury in that car accident when he was young, which shaped the way that his embouchure works. And then he had this injury while he was a professional. And then while I believe he told us later while on tour, when he was back to being healthy and re- and rehabbed, um, he slipped in the bathtub and, and re-injured his shoulder again. Just so it's ridiculous. like he just had such a string of bad luck with physical injuries. And the fact that he's able to not only carry on and remain positive, but play at such a high level is just remarkable. He's an interesting guy, right? Like that position could be a really stressful job, right? And his personality is just kind of, he never gets too anxious about anything. He's just kind of floating through onto the next thing. I, I feel like if you just walked up to him, and said, oh, hey, Rick, can you play a recital right now? He'd like just pull a trombone out of his pocket and be like, oh, sure, man. Yeah. What do you want to hear? You know, he's just just a, a chill guy. He's He's got that I just got done rafting down a river in Texas vibe, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, we should, we should do that sometime. Have you, oh. have you ever floated the river? Uh, I've, I've floated rivers not in Texas, I don't think. Like, have you done it? The, is that just a Texas thing where you you get the inner tubes and then you have the one inner tube with where there's like a platform in the bottom and you put all your beer or drinks and then you just float down with a group of friends? See, of course, leave it up to the Texans to think that it's only there. You know, no, it's everywhere. No, no, I'm, that was a question. <laughs> I was asking if that because no, you I, said you hadn't done it. I hadn't done it in Texas. I said, I've oh, so you oh. you floated. Yeah, I've done it. I've done that it. That sounded like a fart, but that was a chair moving. That was, for once, it was actually a chair. It wasn't a <laughs> fart. I know you would claim it. Yeah, of course I would. I did it. I've done it in Michigan and in Colorado. It's really big in Colorado. That makes sense. You can do it in California. There's a couple of popular spots. Actually, not far from where I am now in Lake Tahoe, there's uh, the Truckee River. That's a big popular one to, to float the river. Truckee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's never like... I don't think you can have a bad time doing that. The only difference is in Michigan, the way that we have done it when I've do it when I've done it before is you tie a cooler to one of the tubes and drag it along. Oh, like the cooler floats in the water. Yeah, yeah, that's that could be it, asking for it. Well, they put like floaties around it too, so it stays up. An inner tube is neither big enough nor cold enough for the amount of beer you need to drink on a, a Michigan float trip. I'm glad people really think about this. I'm sure there's people that literally do it every day, and they're just like chilling, living in their mom's basement. Going floating. <laughs> I'll be back for dinner. <laughs> if I'm not floating, I better be boating. <laughs> yeah, so it was really cool to play with Rick. It was it was hilarious. I, don't, I, I think I barely talked to you about it. I was flying back from Texas. I haven't been home in forever, and I was so excited to get home. And I... Decided, you know, sometimes I get on the internet on the plane. It's always way too much money, but sometimes they had like a 30, 30 minute free thing. So I was like, oh, I'll check in. And I had a text message from the personal manager of the Cleveland Orchestra asking if I was free for a concert that night. And so I'm on a flight from Dallas to Pittsburgh. I had woken up like at 6 a.m. and never played with Cleveland before. 
And it's one of those things like, uh, okay, when am I landing? Okay, uh, okay. And then with everything involved, you know, it took forever to get my bag. The cab took forever. So I got home, got to spend like an hour at my house that I missed so much, found my clothes, downloaded the music, looked at mutes, just put it on the background to try to get my head because I knew I wouldn't have any time to practice. And then hopped in the car, two-hour drive, and I got to the, the hall about like an hour and 15 minutes before. And then Rick's just chilling you know, has big fisherman hat on. He tried to give me the lowdown, but man, what a beautiful, beautiful orchestra to play with. It was a, it was a overall just beautiful experience and so great to play with him. Um, he's just so easy to play with and it's just really nice playing in an orchestra where, I mean, every single person is listening to everybody. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's what I understand. And, you know, um, hey, kids, you should probably practice your sight reading because you never know. <laughs> and he talked about it. Yeah. It was kind of ironic. He talked about in the interview how important right. sight reading was. And and I was sight reading. I, I joked with him because it was, it was Lord of the Rings with the movie soundtrack. And it was great. There was like, you know, 8,000 people there. They were loving it. It was a really beautiful night. And for some reason, the first part got to chill most of the time. And all these corrals with like the second trombone being in the top part and then bass and tuba. And so, like, the whole time I'm, like, pl- sight-reading these corrals when I'm basically playing principal, and I just leaned over to Rick. I'm like, am I getting principal on this or what? Like, how's it, how's this going to work? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, they were super nice. And I'm so glad because I, I wanted to get that last part of the interview. And I learned that you can really get nice interviews by just holding a phone up to someone's face. So, we got to do some more man on the street. Man on the street. Next time, I'm just going to give you a microphone at the ITF and just have you walk around and harass, like, 18 year old kids about their favorite favorite mouthpiece or something yeah i mean yeah chris bill already does that but we could have our own spin <laughs> does he i mean sort of I, I hope chris listens to this i like chris we should Dude. just make fun of chris bill every episode until he actually says something to us about it so we can see if he's actually listening chris bill i hope one day you find matching shoes and shoelaces <laughs> Well, dude, good to see you. Our next podcast, we're going to be releasing soon. It's going to be with Christian Lindbergh. We had an amazing time at the festival, and we'll talk about that after that one. But we had an incredible turnout, so thanks everyone for who showed up for that one. And that interview is so good, and I can't yeah. wait for everyone to hear it. And God, I, Arkansas was hot. We, we can talk about that later. <laughs> but I will say that as a teaser, the oh. Lindbergh interview probably – comes hottest out of the gate out of any interview we've ever done not by anything we did but by the things that christian offered up himself it was uh pretty wild so (laughs) something to look forward to there'd be no other way yep of course if you enjoyed the podcast tell a friend and subscribe everywhere you download your podcasts also please consider being a patron on patreon.com slash trombone retreat and also leaving us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify, as it helps us quite a bit. Follow us at Trombone Retreat on all the social medias and our website, tromboneretreat.com, where you can also join our mailing list. So many things. So much so much time for activities. On Instagram, follow Nick at BassTrombone444 and myself at js.vera. And as always, you know, if you're not feeling so raven put on some milli vanilli slide on those wow you're doing it wrong you're doing it wrong again doing it wrong again okay okay
we're okay. supposed to share this I know, moment. Okay. And you're Let's just trying over. to take the whole spotlight. You know, I like what you're saying. Any Millie Vanilli reference is, is fine with me. I'm willing to blame it on the rain anytime. But I want to do this as, as a collaborative experience. Girl, you know it's true. Um, <laughs> okay. Let me, let me start that one over. There's going to be like two people that got that, and I don't even care. Okay. When and if time you're to get hard. <laughs> the, oh shit! Go ahead. Wait, should I say? Should I start it or should you it. always Go start it. it? Okay. What from now on we'll make that okay. When the times they get hard, and you're feeling not so raven, pull out your favorite pair of dice. Pump up those Reebok pumps, and dunk on all your problems. Mmm. And always remember, retreat thyself.